This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And before we started recording, uh, we were talking about well, the number of goslings that Taylor had, and she said, well, I have this many, no, this many, no, this many, no. So Taylor, <laughs> how many goslings do you have? 18. Oh my God. <laughs> but in my defense, I'm not planning to keep them all. People are like, well, what do you do with them? It's like, I trade them for money. And then I trade that money with the farm store for more goose food. It's how I can afford to have them. <laughs> so you don't seem to be trading any. At what point well, do you trade they... them? <laughs> I have been trading them. Unless you're along, trading them but... like, here, I have one gosling. Will you give me two? <laughs> no, I actually just had the biggest hatch that I've ever hatched. I had 13 eggs in the incubator and 12 of them hatched. Oh, wow. The only one that didn't hatch was the one I wanted to hatch. <laughs> the one that I wanted most to hatch because it was my last buff American egg. And it just didn't. So I'm like, wah! But I'm only planning to keep maybe six of them. Uh, the two American buffs that I hatched out the last time and then four of Francis's babies. And then I'll wait and see how they look when they get older. I'll keep the ones that I like the best and then I'll rehome the rest, the others. And by rehome, I mean get trade them for more money <laughs> so that I can keep <laughs> having geese. Like, yeah, I got it. I, I don't make very much money. And so I got to find a way to support this habit. And I'm like, well, let me sell your offspring. <laughs> That'll do. <laughs> <laughs> give, give me, give me life and I shall sell it. Yeah, it sounds really gross when you talk about it that way. But, you know, it's what it is. And then uh, one of the twin baby goats that were, were born, uh, I guess, about a month ago now. They, he, he, I can't keep him. He, I already have a Billy. And then I kept one of the babies that was a boy that was born that he just was really, he's a really good looking boy. And I was like, eh, I think I maybe want to hang on to him. And I cannot, I don't have any more space for any more boys. So I already have a new home lined up for him once he's completely weaned and eating on his own. What happened to the um, goat that, that came out and then his legs were weak? Her, yeah. So that was his sister. Okay. And it took her a couple of days to get her legs under her. But she's like bounding around perfectly fine. And it was interesting because she was so uh, full of life and energy when she was born, kitted. Uh, it's just her back legs didn't work. So as soon as those back legs started working, then she was just all over the place, high energy, just like the boys. And I will just say, and I've said it before, and I don't even know where I've said it, but there are, the only thing better than one baby goat is two baby goats. <laughs> There's so much fun. And, um, yeah, it's just adorable. And then the one that was born before them, like the two goats were pregnant at the same time. And then one had her baby like a month before the other one had hers. 
that little girl was just the strangest coloration, like these, this, the only way I can describe it, how she looks is like, have you ever seen a log that has sort of the, those mossy fungus growths on it that is sort of like this gray white pattern over and around the log. And it's like, it's a fungus, I guess. And it it sort of gives the wood a multi-toned look because of patches of this fungus. If you've ever seen that, that's exactly what she looks like. But she's doing really well. And she's my favorite now. She's she I, I, I just adore her. She's so sweet. And her coloration is so unique. And it will the, the gray parts are going to fade as she gets older. I read about it, that uh, the silver is really what it was. It tends to fade to whatever their uh, actual base color is. So she's a brown red. So it'll it'll get closer to brown red. But all the white that she has poking through that, that'll stay. And so I guess she's what they would consider a dapple, which is when you just look like somebody threw a can of paint at you, <laughs> <You're> just <laughs> splotched. And it's really pretty. It's really pretty. But right now she's just really weird looking because she looks like a fungus covered log. And I'm not calling her fungus. I'm calling her camo. <laughs> so. Oh, okay. That's better. Yes. Yeah. Fungus. Not, yes. Not so good. Ferrari <laughs> not so, and fungus. Yeah. Yes. No, yeah. That doesn't work. Camo. Camo works though. She's really uh, sweet. I love her. All right. So last week, we, when we were talking about feeling words, you mentioned a movie that you had seen uh, that you wanted to chat about that. So what was the movie and why do you want to talk about it? Okay. So I do. I do have one and I do want to talk about it. Before I go there, I have to get this off my chest. Uh-oh. This is a pet, this is a pet peeve. It is such a pet peeve that I've started screaming at the television every time I see it now. And this is what I scream. Close the goddamn door. <laughs> and now that you've heard that, you're going to start seeing it too. And it, it's a byproduct of movie making where the cameraman often has to follow behind the characters, right? But when you're in a scene where characters are under threat, they're being chased, they're being shot at, or they're like trying to do something in secret, and they don't shut that door. It makes me crazy <laughs> because like, what? It's so bad that I was watching, what was it? Okay, the new Batman movie. There's this scene that takes place in the kitchen and the character, one of the characters opens the refrigerator, takes something out of the refrigerator, like pours a glass of milk or something like that, puts it back in the refrigerator and never closes the refrigerator door. And I was in the movie theater, so I couldn't scream, shut the, close the <laughs> goddamn door. But I said it under my breath. It's everywhere. And every once in a while, there will be a scene where somebody does close the door. And it's like, oh, thank you. <laughs> That's how bad it is. So I'm sorry, I've just ruined movies for you because now you're going to see it everywhere. Okay, that's my pet peeve. I have another one, but I forgot what it was, so obviously it's not as bad. <laughs> we'll see. When, when I remember what it is, I'll write it down, and I'll discuss it on another show. But the movie I wanted to talk about today is called The Protégé, and it ha- it's a Samuel Jackson and Maggie Q, and I saw it on one of the streaming services. I forget which one. And it is... You know, it's kind of right up my alley. It's one of those assassin movies and whatnot. And so I really enjoyed 
that part of it. I thought that it, for however many movies there are out there that deal with assassins and whatnot, this one found a somewhat unique take on that story. I appreciate very much the fact that the actress, Maggie Q, she's, I believe, in her 40s. And she was cast in this very physical, intense role. Huge applause for that. I'm sure it doesn't help that she was once upon a time Jackie Chan's protege. And, you know, she does tricks. (laughs) So that may have given her a leg up in being able to snag a role that Hollywood normally would not give to someone of her age. But regardless of why they did it, I was very happy to see a woman over the age of 40 very effectively handling the role with this type of physical dexterity and whatnot. So maybe we are slowly, slowly moving our way in the right direction. I don't know. That said, I had really big problems with the movies in terms of its setting. Now, this is coming from somebody who writes international stories. I put a lot of research into those international settings and I treat those locations with as and the cultures within them with as much possible respect as I can. And I feel that there is no point setting a book in a foreign location if that foreign location isn't integral to the story. So we've talked about description and how description is the setting, the stage, right? So your character's on a stage and that spotlight shines as they move across the stage. And that's when you see the world open up around them. That is your description. And so if you're going to set a character in a foreign place, it stands to reason that the stage they're on when that spotlight passes over certain things, that those things will be related to the setting. You you can't slap a label and call this setting, and I think we talked about this before, you know, Cameroon, and then show a little shack out in the jungle, and then everything else is just Americanized. That doesn't work. So... In this particular movie, that was how the movie was done. This this movie was supposed to take place in Vietnam, part of it anyway. And it's possible that they actually filmed it in Vietnam. I don't know. I didn't look. But they did make an effort to highlight the point that they're in Vietnam. And, um, you know, some of the settings were made to look like they were in Vietnam but they might as well not even bothered because every single character in this story that mattered was not Vietnamese. There's even a biker gang in this movie that's all foreign characters in Vietnam, all foreign characters, the background characters, like in a big, very wealthy person, having a a party with the elite of the country coming to his party. And some of the 
guests at the party did appear to be Asian. I don't know if they were Vietnamese or not. But the background characters, the security personnel, the waiters and waitresses and all of those people, mostly foreigners. It didn't in in a in a um orphanage, mostly foreigners. And they were nuns, so you know, maybe, but even still you would expect to see local local nuns as well. And so all the business people, the drivers, the chauffeurs, anybody with a speaking part was a foreigner. So what was the point of setting this movie in Vietnam? Like, it, even the plot itself could have gone, been set anywhere. Now, I'm going to assume that because the leading actress is half Vietnamese, that they set the movie there for the character's backstory. And it does make sense for the character's backstory if you know that she's half Vietnamese. But other than that, there was absolutely no reason whatsoever to set the story in Vietnam because it was all foreigners, mostly Americans, a few Europeans. And to me, that was just like... (sighs) I don't even have words for it. Like it was wasted opportunity. Sure. The movie could have been so much more. Sure. But even if you're just going for pure action, don't care about the greediness, don't care about the settings or any, anything like that. Can you at least pretend? And this movie didn't even bother pretending. So I enjoyed it in terms of, you know, that mindless bang, bang action, whatever thought, that it did some things with that overdone story plot that were different, that made it interesting. I did appreciate some of the characters. Uh, The interactions was, it was, it was good. I love that part of the movie, but it's all the, the background stuff, the layers, the texture, the detail, all of that was just so wrong. And maybe 90% of the people watching the movie wouldn't even be able to tell if it's an American audience because they're just not looking for that type of stuff. But I guarantee you, anybody who's not American, even Europeans, <laughs> would be looking at that like, huh, what? And it that is, I think, one of the biggest issues with a lot of what Hollywood puts out is that so much of what we... The stories that we tell, they're completely Americanized. Like we are the center of the world, but so much so to the point that this movie like was a perfect showcase of how even the non-speaking characters, we even Americanized them or it it just, it, it was like the most in your face example that I've ever seen. I was like, oh my God, I got to talk about this. This is, this is amazing in all, for all the wrong reasons. So if there's a lesson to be taken from this as storytellers, it is don't do that. (laughs) If you're going to write a story that is set somewhere, that setting has to be there for a reason. It's not like, oh, I always wanted to travel to Madrid and I want to set a story in Madrid. So I'm going to go there for three or four weeks and, and do all my research 
And then I come back and write a story with Madrid as a setting, but it really could have been set anywhere for the amount of detail that I put into it or the amount of the characters that show up in it. Don't do that, please. We, the, 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 the most wonderful thing about writing stories outside your own frame of reference, writing stories that take place abroad is the fact that they're abroad. Not, oh, hey, this is cool because it's abroad, but it's everything that you can bring, that, that, that the foreign locations can bring to your story. It's a, it's a cultural awareness. It's, it's being in tune or in touch with the differences of how different it is from where you are. That is what readers are going to love because it brings them something new. It brings them something outside their everyday experience. So don't waste it. It's like the perfect opportunity. And I can understand in this particular movie, they might not have seen it as a lost opportunity because that just, they didn't care. It wasn't where they were going with it. And that's all fine and dandy. But as an author, you do not have that luxury. If you are going to set something in a foreign location, take advantage of the location to inform your story, to inform your characters, to inform the dialogue and everything around it so that that location becomes integral. That if you were to uproot your story and try and put it somewhere else, it wouldn't work because everything is connected and that location matters. And I don't feel like I'm effectively communicating my point, but I think I'm close enough that you kind of get the idea. I did not get any of that when I was watching the movie. I, <laughs> <laughs> But you and I see things completely differently. I do remember thinking the background looks a little flaky. Um, in in areas but you know it was an action movie i almost equate this and i don't know whether or not this is fair but uh the difference between traditionally published authors that might write one or two books a year versus an indie author that might write a book a month where it, the person who's writing one or two books a year is going to spend a lot more time getting all of the details correct, whereas the person who's writing a book a month doesn't have time to do that. So they're just trying to create an interesting story and tick enough of the boxes to make it work. I, I, I almost saw this as, as something, hey, let's get this movie done in a couple weeks or three weeks and get it out kind of thing. Yeah, I can totally buy that, that it was filmed very hastily and the entire budget was taken up on the actors. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have anything left for the accuracy. Uh, yeah, I, I could totally buy that. And I'm not saying it was a bad movie. I really enjoyed it. I oh, I enjoyed it too. I, it. I enjoyed it for what it was. I, I enjoyed it as, as well. Now, the thing that I remember most about the movie, and this, I don't know whether this is unique to me or not. I'd, I'd like to get your take on this. But it, it's almost like the uh, Clark Kent Superman thing. The woman, and I don't remember the character's name, the Maggie Q character, played this, uh, you know, a superhero, in effect. It's an assassin that has all these incredible skills and, uh, you know, learned over time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in her non-assassin life, she owned a bookstore, and a, a very special kind of bookstore. And that I, was the yeah. most memorable part of the story for me, was... I did, I did like that. ...that identity. And that allowed me to connect to her as a character... And when something happened inside the bookstore, that was... That pissed that me was, off so bad. Yes, that yes. made me so angry. I was like, that 
that's just not cool. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what you're talking about. Okay. Yes. Um, and, you know, much more so than, you know, getting shot in the shoulder later in the movie or something like that. It's just this, this is bad. And uh, it, it's just, and that took up a very small percentage of the movie, but it, it goes to show how character subtleties or character quirks can, can bind viewers or or readers to a character and it doesn't take a lot in this case that was maybe three or four minutes of movie time maybe yeah yeah no i i totally agree with you on that and and that's a whole extra topic too about you know how those types of details that was character it, you could say it was setting and it was but it was also character because it tells us more about who that character is than any kind of talking or explanation or whatever could even her own dialogue or whatever nothing could have given at least in in that visual storytelling medium nothing could have given us that <laughs> insight into who she is the way that that particular setting did so if you've seen the movie you know exactly what we're talking about if you haven't i'm not going to go into detail i've already spoiled one movie for you i won't try <laughs> to do it again <laughs> and i i will say that you know you talk a lot about the scenes doing double duty and that yeah. scene did a little bit of double duty because it also exposed the the Michael Keaton character a little bit. Yes, yes, beyond it did. what it was, he was. Yeah, and it it was a, a very interesting way of you know how we talk about in stories you want everything needs to tie together, right? Nothing shows up for no reason, especially in movies. And and you'll find yourself seeing this if something shows up on the screen. You know it's important. If a character shows up, you expect to see that character again. Like if they've got dialogue and interaction with the the main character that you're following, you're going to expect to see that character again. That's our level of expectations. So in novels, if you introduce something only as a way to show character and it doesn't come back and tie in again, there's that sense of unfulfillment because we expect everything that we see on the page to matter. We might not always know how it's going to matter, but it is going to matter. And so in that particular movie, that was a really good example of everything tying back together. Like it was obviously from the beginning, a random encounter, at least that's the assumption. And it's reaffirmed later in the story. But by the time we get to that character later in the story, we already have a sense of who they are as well. So that was very well done uh, as well. And for anyone wondering what streaming service, I watched it on Prime. It, it just went into the free part of Prime about two or three weeks ago. Uh, so it should be available there for a while. So if you're a Prime subscriber and you're interested in this kind of movie, preview was great. I had put it on my watch list as soon as I saw the preview and we just kept waiting to be able to yeah, watch it for same. free or yeah. not very much. Yeah, Yeah. same. And I know like you might be thinking, well, this is a podcast about writing why are we talking about movies again and i will just reiterate storytelling it is storytelling and there's so much you can learn about movies for books when you analyze the way stories are presented and told so that's why we're talking about it not just because we you know i want to complain about my pet peeves <laughs> so. well i think that's a that's a separate issue <laughs> the pet we should actually we, we may have to go farm stories at the beginning then the meat of the show and then taylor's pet peeves at the end <laughs> close the goddamn door <laughs> and with that 
We thank you guys very much for listening. We will be back with you again next Tuesday. Thanks for being here, guys. See you next week.